Welcome to Blogs on Tape. Today's post is Downtime Activities, Non-Magical Research, written by Ben L. and originally published on his blog, Mazirian's Garden, at mazirian'sgarden.blogspot.com. Downtime Activities, Non-Magical Research. I came up with a system I like for non-magical research in OSR-type games, and I want to share it with you. One of the player characters in my Dreamlands game has a long-standing interest in the Treaty of the Farthest Shore, an ancient contract between the spirits, demons, of the Endless Azure Sea, i.e. the sky, and the Sky Singers, the ancient mariners who founded the Monarchy of Xian. Her interest was piqued by two things. Having read the passage about the making of the treaty in the classic history of Xian by the utmost chronicle Medes, and having perused a considerably less reputable diatribe titled Secrets of the Treaty of the Farthest Shore Revealed, that all may learn of the treachery of the demons of the air, and power may be gained to overcome our present troubles, by the wide-eyed Zamor Zuft. These texts suggested to the player that this treaty could, theoretically, in some way, be weaponized in the party's long struggle against the hidden king of Xi'an. In a remarkable turn of events, the party recently slew the Prince of the South Wind, a potentate of the Spirits of the Air, and looted his library, where they were finally able to attain a complete twenty-volume set of the Disputations of the Squamorous Jurists. This text contains the Treaty of the Farthest Shore, as well as copious surrounding commentary from the titular Squamorous Jurists, the greatest antique legal scholars of the Spirits of the Air. I was now confronted with what appeared to be a nightmarish problem of explaining what was in this impossibly dense and alien legal treatise. Since the player, Nick, was clearly intending to go all the way down this rabbit hole, I needed a way to handle this. Studying this vast alien legal text was going to be difficult, so I didn't want to hand out information so easily. But nor could I, even if I had wanted to, since the twenty-volume commentary of the Squamorous Jurists so far outstripped anything I could possibly know. This situation militated against my simply answering at length whatever questions the players posed about the contents of the book. It would be too easy for them and too hard for me. It would also be the mother of all information dumps, which would turn the fun of discovery into a kind of setting homework for both me to produce and them to read. Ugh. But, luckily for me, I had been recently reading Megway and Vincent Baker's Apocalypse World and its roguish stepchild, John Harper's Blades in the Dark, both justly famous story games. Among many other innovations, Apocalypse World introduced us to clocks, the idea of a clock is that you have something that will happen, an objective or a condition or a looming event, and there's a certain amount of progress that has to occur before the objective is reached or the event occurs. This progress is abstracted to ticks of the clock, so if something requires quite a lot of progress before occurring, we might set the clock with 8 ticks, if less, 4 ticks, and so on. In Apocalypse World, clocks are used for approaching hazards. Blades in the Dark turned clocks into a versatile mechanic for all situations. Suppose the PCs are involved in a heist, looting a well-guarded mansion. The DM might say, 
I'm setting the clock for you alerting the guards. It has four ticks. Then, if the PCs make a loud noise, or in some other way draw attention to themselves, the DM will advance the clock one or more ticks. When the clock is filled, the guards show up. Blades in the Dark uses this mechanic almost everywhere, for combat with an especially tough foe, with the relation between gangs, etc. So I decided to use clocks to solve my problem, but I took it in an OSR-ish direction. Here's a slightly more systematic and developed version of the clocks-based solution I've been using in play. Research. To research a topic in downtime, the player character must have access to a trove of information. In the most straightforward case, this will be a library or a difficult grimoire or an archive of some sort. But the trove could actually be any source of information, e.g. contacts in the criminal world, a method of divination, etc. The trove always has a subject matter. It can have more than one. The player formulates a question they would like to investigate that falls within the subject matter of the trove. This is called opening a question. The DM then writes up a clock for that question in advance. This clock is kept secret, since it represents the revelation of information through the progress of the investigation. The clock works like this. Each tick is an entry that reveals progressively deeper information in answer to the question. The final tick for the question is the deepest layer of information that investigation will reveal. Once all the segments of the clock have been ticked, the question is closed. For any open question, a PC can spend a downtime action investigating the topic to see if they can make progress on it. Ideally, this will be a cost that would involve foregoing other downtime actions. For full use, this would require a system of downtime actions, a kind of resource minigame happening in the dead time between sessions. To see whether they make progress, I'm using the reaction roll mechanic that Apocalypse World lifts from D&D. You roll 2d6 and add your intelligence modifier. The results are the following. 2 to 6, no progress. 7 to 9, shaky progress. The DM reserves the option to introduce a falsehood along with the truths uncovered or to slightly distort the truths to make things a little ambiguous. Note that the DM doesn't have to do this, but they can if they want to. Don't do this so much or in a way that nerfs and discourages research. 10 plus, progress. For the purpose of this system, the DM keeps the size of the clock secret. The players don't know if this is a shallow topic quickly exhausted, or whether it leads to hidden vistas but the DM does not conceal whether the question is closed or open. If the question is closed after completing a tick, the DM tells the player, you have exhausted this question. If the question is still open after the tick has been completed, the DM tells them, you feel that there are further depths to plumb here. For this minigame to work, the ticks need to be interesting, enticing, and promise at least, perhaps, some actionable intelligence. If the answer to the question is quotidian or irrelevant to their interests, then the DM should make a one-tick clock and give them a full answer to the question they are investigating with a single 7+. Save the multi-tick real-deal clocks for things it's fun to reveal in bite-sized bits. When done right, my limited playtesting suggests that this turns a homework assignment into a tantalizing, tension-building, slow-burning reveal. Along the way, the players will form theories and speculations that race ahead of what they have revealed. 
the urgency of investigation will increase, and maybe, just maybe, something big will come at the end of it. There are some nice twists you can put on this. For example, you can have branching clocks, where a tick to one question opens another question for the party with its own clock. Players will do this organically, as further information suggests other lines of inquiry that they might initiate by spending a downtime action to open a new question. You can also set up walls that require the players to acquire new sources of information in order to make further progress. For example, the text being consulted might refer to another text, and the DM might declare that to make further progress, check the next tick, on the question, the party will have to consult this other text. Or the wall might be one that can be circumnavigated by locating and consulting with a known expert. Or perhaps the only way to surmount the wall is having undergone a certain experience, as one might have the meaning of a certain religious mystery revealed to one only if one had been initiated or has taken the right drugs, or communed with the strange writings on the black obelisks in Hex 04125, or whatever. For this to work, the DM should simply tell players what the research reveals they have to do if they want to make further progress on a question. Another possibility is to modify the role based on a set of conditions. For example, you could allow a penalty for anyone who hasn't consulted a certain other text, or give a bonus for those who had. No doubt further variations exist. An example will help to illustrate the method. Unfortunately, I can't use the real example from my game, since all the questions they are investigating are still open. Example. The Puzzle Scrolls. Suppose the party has liberated an artifact known as the Fourth Puzzle Scroll, from the manse of Vermagen Eliezer, leader of the Withered Nightingales. It is written in an inimical eldritch code, and it seems both dangerous and powerful. The party suspects that to unlock the full power of the fourth puzzle scroll, they will have to acquire a full set. Luckily, the PCs have access to a trove of information on magical subjects, since the party has access to the library of a certain obsessive collector of arcane wonders, having added certain delicious and irreplaceable items to his inventory in the past. The party's magician decides to use this trove to inaugurate a line of investigation by opening the question, where can the other puzzle scrolls be found? Since this is a major artifact with a long history, I decide it will be a five-tick clock. Where can the other puzzle scrolls be found? Five ticks. Tick one. Most references to the puzzle scrolls are off-handed and obscure. But in certain very old texts, you find some useful information. There were seven puzzle scrolls in total. As to their location, a chain of textual references lead you eventually to the section of the Testimony of the Senses that discusses the wonders seen by Balzabo the Theoricius in the legendary Library of Worms at the Monastery of Larsa. He describes in detail a complete set of puzzle scrolls, unfortunately dwelling more on aesthetics than substance, so it seems that a complete set existed at the monastery of Larsa two centuries ago. Tick 2. Your researches inform you that a century ago, the monastery of Larsa was looted by the people of Ash, fire-worshipping Minotaur berserkers. It is said that in those flames were consumed the knowledge of a thousand thousand generations and that the oily smoke of the slaughtered tomes was a pleasing sacrifice to their burnt gods. However, captivity amongst the savage bulls, 
an account of Umut, a librarian who served for ten years under their harsh domination, testifies that certain treasures were rescued from the fires by the Ash scholars, including all the puzzle scrolls but one. Tick 3. Later, some say under a curse, others from paranoia, the Ignatar turned the power of his nomadic empire to building the labyrinthine ziggurat, a maze of dizzying volcanic glass hidden in the desert of the shifting sands near the ancient city of Gz. The ziggurat is said by Nabi, the court poet of the Ignatar, in his Songs of the Ziggurat, to be guarded by the ghosts of fallen Minotaur warriors and the crimson demons of his flaming deity. According to the poem, the Ignatar hid all his greatest treasures there, safe from his enemies. As it happens, the withered nightingales were rumored to have recently returned from an expedition to the region where the ruins of Gz are said to lie. Perhaps, if you consult your underworld contacts, you could open a question on what happened on the withered nightingale's recent expedition to Gz. Branching Clock Tick 4. You strike gold. A lead on the puzzle scroll that did not make it into the Ignatar's collection. The missing scroll was not burned. Twenty years before the burning of the Library of Worms, the wizard Alongstrom, piercer of veils, quietly removed the fifth puzzle scroll from the library. Some say that he did it in the conviction that the world was not ready for the terrible hidden wisdom of the fifth scroll, others that he wished to seize its powers for himself. But here the trail runs cold. Several of the texts you've been consulting refer you to Alangstrom's introduction to Preducts and Other Ways Hither and Yon, a book sadly not found in the collector's library. Perhaps you could make further progress if you could locate a copy of this exceedingly rare text. Wall. Tick 5. In the introduction to Preducts and Other Ways Hither and Yon, Alangstrom obliquely suggests that he opened a preduct to Wishery, the Dreamlands. There he placed the fifth puzzle scroll in a shaded grotto on the hooded isle in the sea of palimpsests, where the veil of reality wears thin and four worlds flicker through like flames behind a thin parchment. As you can see from this clock, a mix of history, possible adventure locales, the names of tomes, and so on are all introduced slowly over an extended period of time perhaps mixed with the occasional rabbit hole or canard on a shaky roll. I think this is a player-driven way to make a fun, sandbox-oriented downtown minigame out of lore in your setting. That was Downtime Activities, Non-Magical Research, written by Ben L. and read for you today by Nick L. S. Whalen. Blogs on Tape is a project that works with authors to make great RPG blogs more accessible through audio recordings. It's a community effort which you can contribute to by giving us permission to read from your blog. You can get in touch with me on Twitter, at LinkSkywalker, or via email, ls at paperspencils.com. And when submitting your blog, please indicate a post you think would make good reading material. And whether or not you're able to contribute in this way, thank you very much for listening.